You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. Have been for almost 57 years now, a long time. My guest today is a psychotherapist and parent educator in private practice here in New York and a senior lecturer of education and psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College. She was the co-founder and longtime director of the Distinguished Nursery School Treatment Center at Payne Whitney Clinic of New York Hospital. The author of Mothering, the Emotional Experience of Motherhood After Freud and Feminism, published by Doubleday and Anchor Press some years back, I find my guest's new book, Good Enough Mothering, the Best of the Blog, based on the blog that she posts online each week, particularly touching in its dedication to all the parents who have taught me so much. Touching, too, and in keeping with full disclosure, is the fact that Dr. Elaine Hefner is my wife, has been for almost 63 years now, also a long time. Now, my guest writes that the message she intends for parents in Good Enough Mothering, the best of the blog, is that there is no perfect. Good enough is good enough. And I think I should ask Dr. Hefner just what she means. Greetings. I'm so glad that you asked me that question because I get very interesting reactions to that statement. Um, some people think that it's just an obvious truism, but a number of mothers have told me they feel as though it's a put-down <clears throat> because they don't want to be just good enough. They want to be perfect. And um, that is really the basis of a lot of what I'm trying to do in, in this book is help them understand the concept of good enough. The, the idea of a good enough mother really uh, is due to a famous uh, pediatrician and psychiatrist, uh, D.W. Winnicott, and he wrote and worked in the uh, late 40s and 50s, um, and he came up with this idea of the good enough mother, and what he really meant by it was um, that the idea of a perfect mother, which he felt many of his colleagues uh, you know, this was the era of Freud and psychoanalysis and uh, a, a big influence of psychoanalytic theory on the whole idea of child-rearing. And uh, mothers came in for a lot of scrutiny. And Winnicott thought they should not be um, setting such standards of perfection. He talked about the average, the, the uh, ordinary devoted mother. And um, so his idea of good enough was a mother who really was not going to just be there and jump at every one of her child's wishes and uh, requests um, because that would not really be that helpful, would not be growth-producing. Um, but good enough meant that she would help him, nurture him, help him or her uh, grow and develop. Um, and so that was his message. But it's kind of ironic because um, um, Winnicott, wrote during the period after the Second World War when the um, 
your ordinary devoted mother, was his phrase, was a mother housewife primarily who was with her child pretty much 24 seven. Um, and so the kind of devoted ordinary mother he was talking about really doesn't have too much to do with today's world. What do you mean? Well, because the role of women has changed. And um, I think that many women grow up now with a different set of ideas about what life can and should hold for them. They, um, I mean, in, the, in Winnicott's day, many women felt that that was their primary goal, was to be a wife and mother. Um, I don't know that um, women start out feeling that way. I think eventually many of them do want to become mothers, um, but they also have a different set of expectations, that they should be out in the world, that they should be able to work at a career or a job. Um, and that conflict between this old idea of, of motherhood and today's reality is something that women today are really struggling with and I think is, is a major uh, burden that they face. But Elaine, how does, how does this lead to this problem with the concept of good enough? Well, the, because the, what I have discovered is that women today, many of them, are really struggling to achieve the very thing that Winnicott was trying to dissuade them from. The difference is that the standards that he set, his definition of the good enough mother, I think many women today would consider perfection. Um, I know I kind of smile when I read it because I think he sets a pretty high bar. Um, so what I've tried to do is redefine the concept of good enough and show that um, that maybe we need to think about what, what mothering and parenting is in a slightly different way. Because the, the kind of mothering that I think has been handed down through a lot of research, developmental research, and uh, especially a lot of the writings of that whole psychoanalytic influence, um, is, is an idea about motherhood which... Uh, first of all, may or may not really be appropriate uh, at any time, but certainly does not fit um, the life that women today want to lead. And that, that standard was possible only when women were ready to devote themselves in a certain way to uh, child-rearing, which I, I'm not sure that many women are today. And even those who are, uh, they get really very invested in doing it perfectly. And, and they have an idea of perfection, which is, is not realistic. Well, when our kids were born, it's a long, long time ago. Don't make it sound so long ago. Well, but it was. Uh, I remember getting a second copy of Dr. Spock. Mm -hmm. uh, and you use Dr. Spock pretty much as a guide. Absolutely. And Dr. Spock has gone through, in fact, uh, my first book, uh, Mothering, I um, have a chapter in which I show the various um, editions that he went through, uh, various printings in which he changed his mind about a lot of things because he um, he also realized that he he Dr. Spock was very much influenced by psychoanalytic theory 
uh, he, he had a lot of psychoanalytic training. In fact, he had a training at Payne Whitney. And um, I, I, I'm not supposed to say this, but I actually saw some of his records when I was years ago when they still had paper records that you could read and didn't have to go and look at it on a computer. Um, and he, he was trying to translate psychoanalytic theory into uh, child-rearing practices. And so um, he, he said a lot of things about parenting that he changed his mind about. Um, in fact, this is just an aside, but I don't know if you remember that somebody gave us a present of a book that said well, what Dr. Spock never t told us. I do and, indeed. <laughs> and he had things like um, Arcaro's disease. I don't know if anybody remembers who Arcaro was anymore, a famous jockey. And, um, uh, and he talked about children who rock back and forth. Um, but the one I love is the one he called Traitor's Throat. When a child, a baby cries loud enough to wake his father, but not loud enough to wake his mother. And, and that is really a made-up category because I, I don't know babies like that. <laughs> the mothers always wake up. But look, A, that's not true. Uh, as the father, I can testify it's not true. But B, I know from over the years that you've always been very much concerned with the negative impact upon mothers of expert advice. What, what always raises your hackles mm -hmm. about the experts? Well, um, I've often considered an expert myself, so I have, I have to be, I'm always trying to disabuse people of that, that idea. I, I think what I'm talking about is a prescriptive approach. Prescriptive? Uh, yeah, prescriptive. In other words, if, if you do this and this and this, um, then, then everything is going to be wonderful. Uh -huh. And the idea that if you don't do it exactly as you've been told to do it, um, uh, if something, you know, you're going to have pathology, you're going to have all kinds of things going wrong. And, and you think mothers have been misled by that? I know they have. And... Um, they, but they don't feel secure about what they're doing. It's, it's interesting because, um, just, you know, I, I participate in a seminar at, at um, Cornell, um, a training seminar for, for uh, fellows in child psychiatry. And yesterday at, at the seminar, we were discussing um, siblings. And the, the whole... Um, the, as background, there was readings uh, in some of the psychoanalytic theory, some of Freud's theory about siblings and so forth. Um, and it was a, an interesting discussion because a, a much of what was discussed was what parents today, how they react to that. And, and I know my own experience is that parents tend to think of um, sibling rivalry, they, they know about it intellectually, but they get really nervous when they see any sign of children being angry at each other or, or fighting, uh, aside from the fact that it's not too pleasant to live with. But um, it, it's, and what I find is that they think if they do everything just right, if they prepare the older child in, in just the right way, if they don't take away the crib to give it to the baby too soon, if they don't take the bottle away from the older one um, in too close proximity to when they're going to have the baby, a whole bunch of things like that, then they're going, not going to have any sibling rivalry. Everything will be perfect. And that's what I mean about <laughs> thinking that you can make something perfect um, or that it's even desirable. 
and in that I agree with Winnicott completely because one of my main messages to parents is that um, even if you could be this perfect mother that you somehow idealize, um, it would not be good for your children because they would never grow up. <laughs> if somebody is, is taking care of you and, and um, you know, making you totally dependent, um, well, you're not going to be a very strong individual. So there has to be frustration and things not going the way you like. And one of the things about, <coughs> sorry, about our culture is that we, we don't deal very well with negative feelings. We're, negative feelings are suspect. You're not supposed to feel bad. Um, we have pills for everything. And um, all the commercials tell you that. Um, you know, everything that, any, anything that's bothering you, um, well, we have a, something to cure that. So we don't um, accept the idea that adversary, adversity is part of life. And, um, and this is how people get, this is how children get strong, by facing things as they grow. Not, obviously, we don't want to give them more than they can handle, but neither do we want to uh, try to create a bed of roses. You know, I, if I think back on our 63 years, no bed of roses. <laughs> if I think back on those years, I know that what you have always been concerned about was um, the bad rap that mothers get. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember when in your first book on mothering, you, you Philip Wiley figured in that, in the generation yeah. of vipers. I quoted him as saying, Mama's a jerk. Yeah, and I, do you feel that now in uh, uh, the 13th year of this century, that we're still involved in getting after mother, blaming mother? I absolutely do. And I, I think I have my own theory. Of, well, I don't know if it's my only my theory, but... Uh, I think that everybody has an idealized image of of what mother should be, who mother should be. Uh, we all wish our own mothers had been this, that, or the other thing. Um, I, I mean, either people idealize their mothers and make you know try to persuade themselves that everything was wonderful, um, or they they sit, tell me uh, the one thing I don't want to be the kind of mother my mother was. Um, and they try studiously to avoid with their children some of the mistakes that they think that their mother made with them. So I do think that that's a, a kind of, if you forgive me, an unconscious thing that goes on. Um, Hostility toward ma? Sort of. Or, yeah, um, a feeling that mother is not as good as she should be uh, and a wish that she be something different than she is. And so I think there are a lot of fantasies about who a mother should be. But there's also something else that is, I'm very uh, interested in, which is that we have in our society a history of what I call social engineering through child-rearing um, and education. Uh, in other words, if there's a problem that we see in society, we want to fix it by the way people raise their children. And we blame parents, um, and mothers in particular. And these days, mothers get, get a lot of blame because there's a whole segment of our culture that believes if women would just go back to the home, do what they're supposed to do, um, stay barefoot and pregnant, um, then 
we wouldn't have all these social problems. And to a certain extent, that is correct, that when women uh, took that responsibility and life was very tidy and men went to work and women stayed home and took care of the children, um, that life was a lot more orderly. But this was all being done on the backs of one, one sex. And I think that women rebelled against that and they, they really don't want to be the um, carriers of the sole uh, problem of how, how to be a, uh, an active member of society and at the same time raise children. So we really have not solved that problem. That is a, a social problem, a cultural problem that is very active right now, that women in particular experience it. They feel very conflicted. Um, I find often that mothers who are working, if any, what I call bump in the road, because you can't raise children without having bumps in the road, um, they attribute it to the fact that they're working and that they think that that's somehow responsible for what's happening. Why have we, why have <coughs> American mothers, uh, been attacked so in terms of other peoples, Chinese, French, <laughs> you name them? Well, what, what it seems to me as I've looked at this is that what's really going on is a struggle about an authoritarian approach to child rearing versus the more permissive uh, I'll say democratic uh, approach that we have adopted in this country. And um, we've gone through an evolution. And I'm sure um, you're a historian. You are very well aware of, <coughs> of what child rearing was like in the Puritan era and then <coughs> in, the, in the years that followed. Um, there was, you know, children should be seen and not heard. Uh, respect your elders. Um, the the, the the whole idea that um, you know I always I always uh, qu quote that old joke about uh, when I was a uh, child my parents got the white meat of the chicken now that I'm a parent my children get the white meat of the chicken when is it going to be my turn so not that everybody loves white the white meat of the chicken but the the idea being that um, at one point children were supposed to defer to parents, and now it seems to have gotten turned around in which parents defer to their children a great deal. And, um, and I think that if you read things like the Chinese Tiger Mother or Raising Bebe or some of the other stuff that's come out, uh, you'll see that what they're admiring is the authoritarian, um, I'm the boss approach. And I know, I know from our Sunday night discussions when you send out your, when you post your <laughs> blog, I must use the right language, I know that you address yourself to so many of these questions, problems, um, to parents, to mothers in particular, but not only to mothers. I'm always delighted when what a father <laughs> sneaks in to one of your uh, one of your posts. Do you find that um, as you write these blogs that the response to them indicates that there is a continuing hunger on the part of mothers, young and not so young, 
for information and for orientation, perhaps the orientation that uh, you offer most of all, and that uh, has to do with nobody's perfect. Well, I do try, I try to be reassuring and uh, supportive. <clears throat> that, that is the primary goal that I have because I think that, that uh, mothers and fathers get enough criticism. Um, they, every magazine article that you pick up uh, tells you uh, what some latest research finding is uh, that indicates uh, some problem that is coming out of parenting. Really? Is that the pattern? Oh, there's it's a great deal, yes, because um, this is, as I say, there's, there's a, an idea that somehow if you fix this, then we'll get rid of this problem. You mean and, if you fix mothering? Yeah, if you fix what the writer has identified as the particular uh, issue that they think is destructive or what have you. Um, and uh, just somebody, um, actually a member of our family, recommended a book on, about narcissistic mothers and what they, how they damage their children. Well, that is so typical. I mean, to, people come up with these labels, you know, ways of, um, it, it, well, it sells books for one thing, but it is very destructive. And um, I think that women and mothers do take, do take a lot of this seriously. And I, I know that um, any time I've written about any of those articles and indicated, um, kind of supported the parents' uh, viewpoint or role, uh, that I get a lot of positive response because I think, uh, I think women and men too are, hung are hungry for a, a feeling of... Um, Validation. Is what do you mean, validation? That that they're doing a good job, and that um, and that you know what was that movie? The kids are all right, um, and I, I think that we're, we are in such a competitive society, um, and <clears throat> the educational system is broken, as everybody is aware. So there's there's such a competition for good spots in schools. Um, and I, I, I think so much of raising your children is really a matter of values. I mean, what's important to you? When somebody says to me, I, I want to be perfect, I want to be a perfect mother, well, does that mean that you want to raise a perfect child? So who is this perfect child? Is this a child who gets a straight A, grade A? Uh, is this a child who is, excels at sports? Is this a child who is an outstanding musician? Um, a creative genius. What what is this child? Who is this child who's going to make you feel like a perfect mother? Um, so the, what we're demanding something impossible of our children um, that they should turn out in a way that will help us feel like perfect parents, and that's just not going to happen. So my, my philosophy and my outlook is that um, that children. There are, they are going to be what influenced much more by who you are than by what you do. Who you are as people, what your values are, what's important to you, how you treat each other, um, how, you, how you treat your children in that sense of you know, mutual respect, I think in the end is much more important than uh, you know, whether, you, <clears throat> whether, whether you've 
done exactly the right thing about weaning or exactly the right thing about toilet training or all these things that young mothers worry about with their little children. Talking about all the uh, things they worry about, <coughs> you have a blog here, No Fault Mothering. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you mean? Well, that was very, it was very interesting, actually, because a mother wrote to me, and um, she told me that, there, that somehow um, the feeling that something is your fault is empowering because then you can do something about it. And whereas if it's, if it's something genetic or, you know, some, something is terribly wrong with your child, uh, then, you know, maybe you're helpless to do anything. But, but um, if you can believe that it's your fault, then you can fix it. And I, that, that's quite a burden. Um, and, I, you know, I've seen this um, at, at working, working in the hospital uh, with parents who really, um, they really would prefer to see a child's problem as something they caused than as something inherently in the child that can't be fixed. One minute we have left. What do you mean? Well, sadly, there are some very unhappy disorders that uh, that children have, and um, but which a limited amount can be done about. And parents would would prefer to see um, feel that they that whatever is wrong, they can fix it. Um, and so th- that you know that's a great burden to carry around. And, you know, we've, we've also, um, we used to think that mothers were, we used to blame them psychologically, but now with all this brain research and all this biological research, uh, the whole idea of what you've contributed genetically in every other way is just the, bur- <laughs> the burden is really too much. I get the signal. Our time is up. Maybe we'll have a chance to talk again, and maybe you'll even come back and we'll continue this discussion. Meanwhile, thank you, Dr. Hefner, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. (laughs) For this long. (laughs) Thanks to, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind.